So this morning, we are continuing um, our studies in the, this book, The Principles of Conduct, by John Murray. And we are we're going to be discussing chapter 3. We're going to begin to discuss chapter 3 on the marriage ordinance and procreation. Specifically, what is the biblical ethic or set of commands governing these doctrines? And remember, in doing this, we are seeking to learn how, not necessarily what, to think about questions we're all facing uh, in our lives today. And more deeply than that, we want to drive home for ourselves why we as Christians think the way we do about issues we face living in this world. So no matter how our world changes, our foundation must be and is the same. So, so why do Christians think the way we do? Why are we to think, what are we to, what are we to base our thinking on? What's the foundation of it? God's revelation. The scriptures. Something outside of ourselves. Right? Now as our understanding of that revelation of our Bibles grows and deepens, our how will get more and more refined. So how we think will become more and more informed the better and better we know our Bibles. Which is exactly why uh, your elders and I, I trust many of you encourage one another to be in God's word continuously, all the time. Get to know what God says about himself, about us, and about how we are to live in this world. But what we think about this issue or that issue will change because the issues will change moment by moment, practically, and also what we think, in other words, the set of rules we set for ourselves to think, to think about a given issue is going to change depending on our specific circumstances, our situation, and, and what we are facing in that moment, but the how we think, and more importantly than that, why we think it, doesn't change. And, and this book is seeking to teach us what the title says, principles of conduct. Principles to apply to shape our thought processes so that the what we come up with, each one as individuals in this room, is in keeping with those principles. So there's a lot more in chapter 3, which is what we're discussing today, beginning to discuss, than we'll be able to cover today or in any of the lessons I teach. I'd recommend reading the chapter to get a deeper treatment of some of the things I will only mention and some things which I won't even, won't even touch on. It's worth reading. Now, I also want to give something of a content warning for the lessons in this chapter. Not that we'll discuss anything that those here should not be exposed to, 
But it may be a matter of timing and discretion on a family-by-family basis or a person-by-person basis. So be forewarned, it is impractical and unhelpful in lessons covering this chapter where we are discussing the biblical ethic governing marriage and procreation not to discuss the means of procreation. In fact, that is pretty much the context for this entire chapter. So consider this to be the content warning right here at the beginning. I'm I'm thinking it'll take us two, but more likely at least three lessons, including today, to get through all that we have in this chapter. But we'll just see how it goes, because there's there's some variation in how long these lessons take based on the discussion we have. And possibly the questions we get between lessons and and what we we, uh, try to focus on in in the future lessons. So first... What do we mean by procreation? This has been touched on by both pastors Jim and Derek. But we'll treat it in a little more depth this morning. So Genesis 1.28, right at the beginning of our Bibles. We've read this already. I'll read it again. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And we could stop there, but I'll, I'll complete the, the verse uh, so that we can see what, what the intended outcome of being fruitful and multiplying is. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now Derek touched upon this briefly last week, talking about uh, filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion. And I'm not going to talk about that today. We're focusing on be fruitful and multiply. The command in this verse. The first command in this verse. So there it is right at the beginning of the Bible. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So there's a couple things to note here. God gave this command to Adam and Eve before the fall. And so, why do I point that out? I point that out because that means that procreation or multiplication of mankind is a good impulse. It's part of God's original creation. It's it's one of his early commands. It's not a result of the fall. And we can safely conclude from this fact that God desires that the earth would be filled with his image bearers. And we could also talk at some length, and we won't, about why he wants that to be. But it certainly is not simply for subduing and exercising dominion over the earth, though it is that. But it certainly is also him desiring that his image bearers would be an ever-growing number offering him praise and adoration. And we aren't going to talk more about that. But we do know that God desires us to be fruitful and multiply. So before we go on, let me ask a question. This is open to the floor, and I want anyone to feel free to answer. 
Because there may be more than one answer. What does this command, be fruitful and multiply, mean to us? What's it mean? What's it saying? Ruth has, has correctly answered, get married and have children. She put, in the, she put in the requirement there before the command, but nevertheless, that's true. How many children? As many as God will give you. As many as God will give you. Okay. So does it mean for us to multiply as much as we can? No. No. Hmm. So if I take this command and make it my life verse, be fruitful and multiply, if it's my exclusive focus in life to obey this command, why wouldn't I simply seek to have as many children, now Ruth already answered this, but have as many children with as many women as I could? Because it doesn't say anything about anything else except be fruitful and multiply. It does implicitly, but I'm setting up a a rather weak straw man here to provoke you guys to think about this. Because there are other commands in Scripture, aren't there? Ruth mentioned one. (laughs) And we're going to discuss a few of them today, but nowhere near all of them. That's why it's important that we are in the word, understanding these things, understanding the heart of our God and what he um, commands us out of a desire for our good. So I need to include obedience to the command to marry before multiplying and to remain married to my one spouse for life with Limited exception. And then there are a host of other commands governing my relationship with my spouse, with my spouse that needs to be factored in as well. Right? And Daryl mentioned a couple of... He mentioned you've got to be able to tend what you plant, so to speak. So now in light of this, these brief considerations, is there just one simple answer to what it means to us to be fruitful and multiply. Can we write an answer down that we can all live by? Being fruitful and multiply means having as many children as you're able, as many children as God gives you. Those are different answers. It means having X, where X equals some positive integer, greater than zero. Is that what it means? What what? Does it, is there just one simple answer to what this command means to us that we can all apply? No. <laughs> you guys could say that. <laughs> no. That leads us to considering what Pastor Jim preached to us from Romans 14 just recently. We are not to judge... That is, in the, in the spirit of accusing of disobedience. We're not to accuse our brothers and sisters 
or to despise them, that is, think lightly of them, blow them off because they don't do it right. They don't do the what that we do, so they must be wrong. We're not to do that according to Scripture. Because each of us has to work out our obedience to this command for ourselves based on the foundation that we all have that guides our thinking, the principles of conduct. I'm going to give a quick example. So my wife and I have three children born to us. Daryl and Cindy have six. So were me and Donna half as obedient to this command as Daryl and Cindy? Depends on how hard we tried. <laughs> Depends on how hard we tried. Hmm. Okay. I think the answer is obvious. Right? I mean, if we could measure how hard we tried, we might find out that me and Donna tried harder than Daryl and Cindy. I don't know. And I don't need to know. What I need to say is, there should not be men and women in our church who are casting shame on others because of the way they have worked out their obedience to God's word about this. We don't need to be looking beside us and saying, you're doing this wrong. You're not doing this the way I know is the right way to do it. Because the way I know is the right way to do it is specific to my circumstances and God's providence in my life. It's not your circumstances or God's providence in your life. So work these things out for yourself and don't cast shame on others who work them out differently. The bottom line is we all need to honestly work out our obedience to Scripture, to Scripture, to God, and not to the expectations of others around us. And you know what? Those expectations are most often implicit. It's a snide remark or a sideways glance, tone of voice. It's very rarely a someone confronting someone else and saying, you're not having enough kids. But it could be. So does that mean there's not room to exhort, that is encourage, and admonish or correct each other as we seek to work these things out? Is there not room for that? Absolutely. I'm not talking about grandchildren right there. There is room for it. Not so much for the reasons Daryl gave, but there is room for it. We all have the old man dwelling in us. And he affects our thinking to a lesser or greater extent. We all as Christians must, because it was a command of of Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That means that whatever we do, 
whatever we do, whatever we work it out for ourselves, not how we work it out for our neighbor, but how we work it out for ourselves, we must do with an eye toward obedience to his word, not toward pleasing ourselves. Because pleasing ourselves is the opposite of denying ourselves. I'm not saying that you can't deny yourself and please yourself. But I am saying that if pleasing yourself is at the root of your motivation for doing a thing, you're not denying yourself. How do we do that? By crucifying the desires we have to go on our own way rather than obeying what we read in God's word. Why? Why do we want to do that? I'm saying this again and again. I'm just trying to press this home. Because we're seeking to conform our will to his will for our lives. And you know what? His will for our lives, his commands for us, are for our good. They're for our happiness. They're for our contentedness. They're for our joy and our peace. We find that hard to believe sometimes because they go against what we want. But we need to ask ourselves, is what we want the old man or is it the new man? And we can certainly help each other along this way as long as we're examining our own logs before we help someone with their speck. Be conscious of your own weaknesses and biases of thinking before accusing or helping one of your brothers or sisters with their weaknesses and biases. So, I want to get back to the flow of the book here. Where God gives a command, be fruitful and multiply, he always provides a righteous means to obey the command. This means could have been literally anything. After all, God created the system we're living in, so to speak, out of nothing, and he could have created it in any way he desired. And he did. He created it exactly the way he desired. In this case, the command be fruitful and multiply requires, in God's providence, the participation of both a man and a woman, both a husband and a wife. And God's appointed means of obedience requires a man and a woman to be joined together in a one flesh relationship. In other words, God created not just the physical world we see around us, and indeed even our own bodies, but also the means by which to obey his command to be fruitful and multiply. God created it. That has implications as well. And I want to, I'm not trying to rein myself in from going off on that tangent right now. So I'll, that, that comment made it enough. We'll just keep going. Now, we can't all know the purposes for God's chosen means. But we can seek to obey and to learn lessons, that is, be sanctified in our obedience to his commands. Being sanctified, I normally equate that with 
don't take this wrong, I normally equate that with some form of pain, some form of difficulty in my thinking or in my person, some form of struggle. We should expect to have to struggle with our old man as we put him to death and put on the new man in seeking to obey his commands, to work out obedience to his commands in the way that is right, is righteous and is in keeping with God's word as we understand it today. So Murray at times refers to this means of obeying this command. He refers to it as the procreative impulse, which I find to be rather cumbersome. And I also find it to be rather needlessly masking. But I understand what he means. In our lessons, we're going to refer most often to this one flesh relation as sex. Murray does this also occasionally. Now, we'll discuss it a bit further later, but God's creation of sex as the means for us to obey this command means that he created us as sexual beings. That's included in our, in our uh, God's image, as God's image bearers. We are sexual beings. It's part of our makeup as image bearers. And all of us have, to varying degrees, a God-given desire or drive for sex. Now, I said varying degrees because there are very, very low degrees that some have, and there are very, very high degrees that some have, and the Bible acknowledges that. This desire or drive is to be controlled in such a way that it is only righteously directed within the bounds that God has laid out for us. And we have, we've we already touched on that thanks to our sister Ruth. She's within marriage. Sex is intended only to be practiced, only to be practiced within marriage, according to Genesis 2.24 and according to the seventh commandment put negatively, but it's according to the seventh commandment. So it's only between one man and his wife all the days of their lives. That's the original intent. This ethic, monogamy, one man and one woman, was understood outside of even the covenant community in the Old Testament. And Murray goes to some length in the chapter to demonstrate this. And it's, like I say, it's worth reading. We're not going to touch on it anymore today. But it was understood outside of the covenant community to be the biblical ethic. It's what God expected. So Jim has already covered in summary that God created marriage to be the ordained context for the practice of his created means of obeying the procreation mandate. And we'll discuss later the purposes for sex in marriage, because it's more than just procreation. But for now, only the procreative impulse is, is highlighted at this point of our discussion. So now we want to ask an, 
a, f a few questions. And the first one is, if they are to marry, and that's giving due credit to a, a, a question coming up, but if they are to marry, who is to marry? So I just want to answer that by reading the scripture. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. This is answering who is to marry. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here, the marriage ordinance is laid out pre-fall for Adam and Eve. So note, there is a man and there is a woman. The woman is created from the man's rib and brought to him by God. And he is immediately drawn to this creature. And he erupts in this song of praise and adoration. Praise and adoration for this creature. Not, for, not necessarily directly for God who created her, but for this creature. Whether we would recognize it as a beautiful song of praise and adoration or not. Because frankly, I, I don't really see it that way. But I'm in a different time. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I would choose to say something else. But that's what Adam said. And he was praising Eve's, Eve's beauty. He was attracted to her. And immediately after that, God proclaims the ordinance of marriage. So what, what can we learn from this? There's really two things we can learn from this, at least. The first is that marriage is intended to be monogamous. As we, we've already touched on this. It's intended to be one man... One woman. It's implied in Genesis 2, pretty strongly implied, but it's taught by example, both positive and negative, in the Old Testament, and by command in the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul. So it's monogamous. One man, one woman. This, this opens a potential tangent for talking about polygamy. We're not going to do it, but it does open that possibility it is for life is the other implication here divorce is permitted and this opens another potential tangent that we could go off on we won't but divorce is permitted due to hardness of heart in the old testament that is strengthened by jesus in the new testament to only for sexual immorality only for adultery And that impresses upon us the intended permanence of the institution. It's only for extraordinary circumstances that this institution should be broken. So verse 24 of Genesis 2, which is, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That lays down for us the definition of marriage. That's God's definition of marriage. 
It's a one flesh relationship between one man and one woman for life. Now note that the Bible does not explicitly address all the different permutations of so-called marriage that we see in our day. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't address man-man marriage, woman-woman marriage, polyamorous marriage, and who knows what else will be cooked up. It doesn't address those. Is that a weakness in the scriptures? It simply defines marriage as between one man and one woman, monogamously for life. By doing that, by defining it that way, it eliminates all other possibilities from that definition. So you don't, it doesn't need to, he didn't need a whole bunch of fine print read by a guy who can read real fast and low to qualify that definition. That definition is it. So when someone challenges us about what quote-unquote marriage is in our day, our response simply has to be, this is either an internal response or it's potentially a spoken response to the person if you're having a discussion with them. It doesn't have to be a defiant response. It just needs to be a factual one. Our response, it has to be that marriage is defined for us not by us. And that, is, that captures the uh, continental divide between uh, following God and subjecting ourselves to his word, his commands, his desires, and following man, humanism, and subjecting ourselves to our, our desires, our commands, our thoughts. So what they are talking about may be modern-day marriage, quote-unquote, but they have changed the meaning of the word. It's, it's something like redefining an apple to mean any kind of fruit you can think of. If there are, I'm not going to try to define a, a, a fruit from a botany perspective because I know I'll mess it up. So I won't try to do that. But let's just say any fruit, bananas, oranges, grapes, the whole gamut. Is, someone defines it, our culture defines it and says that's an apple. It's all apples. That's fine because our culture can do that. We can, we can define our language. But doing that doesn't make an apple the same as an orange. It just doesn't. It defines it that way from a humanistic perspective, because that's what humans can do. But it doesn't make an apple an orange. In the same way, saying that a man is married to a man or a woman is married to a woman does not make them married in the eyes of God. It just doesn't. So, we want to get back to kind of the flow of the book here. <laughs> um, marriage is a one flesh relationship between one man and one woman for life. 
And we need to remember that that's God's definition, not our definition. We're just, we're just using the definition that's been given to us from outside ourselves. So, whom are they to marry? If they, if they choose to get married, who are they to marry? We're going to be brief here. But I'll just read 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Note that in keeping with the concept of progressive revelation, this New, New Testament command, this New Testament concept of Christians marrying only in the Lord is consistent with the Old Testament practice of marrying only within the covenant community. Recall the episode with Isaac and Rebekah over Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau had gone his own way. He'd taken some Hittite wives. And Rebekah goes to Jacob and says, Oh, please don't let, don't let, uh, goes to Isaac and says, Please don't let Jacob do that. Now, she has other reasons. She has other motivations here. But she has this motivation as well. And so does Isaac. Genesis 27:46 says, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth these Hittite wives. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these, who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she's appealing to him to please send Jacob away to your family of origin to find a wife. Isaac and Rebekah's concern was that Jacob take a wife from the family of covenant promise. Abraham's seed. Rather than from a certain line of physical heritage. Hittites were not in that line. So we see the Old Testament shadows. We could, we could multiply examples here. But we see the Old Testament shadows are pointing to what is made clear in the New Testament. And what is made clear? The family of covenant promise in the New Testament is a spiritual family. It's a family that is uh, constructed by faith rather than a physical one that pointed to it in the Old Testament. So Christians are to marry Christians. And, by the way, non-Christians, it's not that they're not to marry. Non-Christians are to marry non-Christians. Okay, we'll try to talk briefly about this. Probably have to come back to it, but I want to say it because this, this is the third question. You've talked about who's to marry who and, 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 uh, and who they are to marry, but what if I don't want to get married? That, that happens. Marriage is neither universally commanded nor forbidden in the scriptures. I'm, I'm only going to present the summary of the key points from Murray's argument here, but 
he has a whole depth of several pages of argument here about this concept. But basically it says that neither marriage nor singleness is presented by Paul in the category of ought or ought not. In other words, in the category of command. You have to do this, you have to not do this. It's not presented that way. It's rather presented as a matter of expediency, which is a word that I don't use very often. I don't know about you guys. Some of you probably do. But synonyms for that might be helpfulness or usefulness. He's saying it might be expedient to marry, or it might be helpful or useful to marry in these cases, or it might be expedient not to marry, or helpful or useful not to marry in these cases. But he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I'm resisting the urge to go off on tension here too. Because I can remember this verse being quoted to me over and over again by my young boys, who of course went through the stage of believing that girls had cooties, and it's good for a man not to touch a woman, Dad. So in verse 1, Paul states, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, in response to a Corinthian question which is not recorded for us. But here, Paul is clearly stating that a man, for a man not to have a wife can be a good thing. It can be a good, a righteous decision for him. It's possible. Okay? He qualifies that with what he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He writes, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul was single. But each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner, and another in that. As Paul says later in the chapter, he would desire that men and women would be without care. And he's, he's in the midst of an argument there about, about an issue related to this. But he acknowledges that there are different giftings from God. And Paul's teaching agrees with the teaching of Jesus to the disciples in Matthew 19, where the disciples said in, in the wake of Jesus further constricting the reasons a man can divorce his wife, they said, it is better not to be married. And, and Jesus said, all cannot accept this saying. This is Matthew 19, 11, and 12. All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Some are given the gift of what Murray calls continence. That is, a control of their desire, of their God-given desire for sex. Some are given continence, control of it. Jesus is clearly teaching that in Matthew 19, 11, and 12. 
He teaches there are three types of people given this gift of singleness, I'll call it. Those who are born that way, those who have the necessity forced upon them by circumstance, providence, (coughs) that would be like war or some other unchosen separation. That's not an excuse for a man to sow his wild oats. That's forced upon him. Or three, there are people that voluntarily choose singleness and are able to exercise control over themselves for the sake of the kingdom the kingdom work that they're doing. And to us, Jesus and Paul are clearly saying that for them to live a life not seeking to marry is good and useful. It's expedient. An implication of this teaching is that not marrying equals not having sex. Celibacy. It it equals that. That's the clear implication of that teaching. It's made clear explicitly elsewhere in Scripture. But there's no category where it's okay for a Christian to seek to satisfy what uh, Murray calls the sex impulse or the procreative impulse outside of marriage. There is no category for that. And I think I'm going to have to stop there because it's 1045. So we'll come back to this briefly when we, when we uh, talk again about this. But then we're going to go on to talk about the biblical ethic, the biblical rules, the biblical set of principles that should guide us in thinking about sex within marriage. Okay? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful to you that you have given to us uh, a completed Bible, that you have given to us your word, you have given to us your thoughts on many, on the many issues that we face in our lives today. Father, we pray that you would make us students of this word and you would make us able to apply it more and more carefully and more and more accurately to our lives day by day. And Father, protect us, uh, keep us from uh, judging our brothers or sisters who seek to apply it in, in different ways than us. Cause us rather to encourage them and admonish them where necessary uh, to help them to walk along the way that you have laid out. Father, we thank you that all of your commands for us in your word are for our good. And we pray that we would uh, live as if we actually believe that at every moment. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.